Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Got a different psalm this evening, not the typical moving from fear to faith outline that we've seen so many times in the psalm, Psalm 79. God's got a little bit of a different message for us. Psalm 79. It's, uh, it's, it's very similar to Psalm 74. That was a long while, I think, before Christmas when we were there. And the context in both of them refers to when the Babylonians came into Israel and decimated the nation. In both of these psalms, that's interesting because the superscript uh, of these psalms is short. Both of them, Psalm 74 and 79, just says a psalm of Asaph. And uh, Asaph lived centuries before that actually happened. Um, He lived when David was reigning as king. And so that's caused some people to doubt the human authorship of Asaph, uh, thinking it may have been one of his descendants who recorded this as maybe more of a historical narrative. But I see no reason why that has to be the case, uh, because who's the ultimate author of this psalm? It's God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, who inspired David and Asaph and Moses and all different other human authors to write these psalms. And so is it out of the realm of possibility that, like Psalm 74, that God would inspire Asaph to write these words down as a prophetic message about what would happen, what would happen if Israel continued down the path of idolatry? Now, I think that's exactly what, what is going on here. And the vast majority of this prayer song, honestly, it, it's painful. It's even frightening. Uh, for us to read, and we'll read it here in just a moment, but I believe there's also, it's important for us to read, because there's a strongly recognizable parallel to the state of the church of Jesus Christ in our day in this psalm. Let's read it. Psalm 79, beginning verse 1. O God, the heathen are come into thine inheritance. The holy temple have they defiled, and they've laid Jerusalem on heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat unto the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of thy saints unto the beasts of the earth, Their blood have they shed like water round about Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. We are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee, and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon thy name. For they have devoured Jacob, they've laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercy speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants, which is shed. Let the sign of the prisoner come before thee, According to the greatness of thy power, preserve thou those that are appointed to die, and render unto our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach, wherewith they have reproached thee, O Lord. So we, thy people, and sheep of thy pasture, will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise. 
to all generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you uh, in your Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of this psalm to us tonight. Uh, God, may we learn. You've, you've given us this, for us, a historical narrative of what happened when your people didn't respond to your truth. We don't want to experience that ourselves. God, when we feel low, when we feel like there's not very many of us who believe like we do and live like we do, Lord, I pray that we would go to your promises here in this psalm to remember that you are here and you're present and you're keeping us and you're upholding us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 1 through 4, they describe a pretty graphic catastrophe. Um, And we see in verse 1 the arena where this catastrophe occurred. As mentioned earlier, God is describing here the future invasion of Israel by the Babylonians that happened in 586 B.C. And so it's future for them right now, and it's historical, of course, for us. And verses 1 through 4 are a very concise description, but they're still quite graphic even in their brevity. Um, verse 1, a desperate cry from Asaph to God in prayer. He says, O God, the heathen have come into your inheritance. He's saying, the heathen have come into our land, the land that you gave us. It's been invaded and taken over by godless people. I'm going to try to draw application here, really, in verse 1. Do you feel like this could relate at all to our current context I think it's inarguable that the America of today, as imperfect as it always has been, it's far from the nation that our grandparents knew and prior generations to them knew. And I'm not saying that this is an identical situation at all. In fact, there are significant and even more sad differences here um, because we, we haven't faced an invasion of heathen armies from the outside. If anything, we faced an invasion of godless ideas from within. And the second part of verse 1 quickly takes the situation to an even more dire place. Asaph cries out, Thy holy temple have they defiled. Jerusalem is in heaps. Asaph cries out in prayer again, God, your holy temple, the place of your presence, the place you are worshipped by your people, it's been defiled by these godless invaders. And so again, is there a parallel For us here, I believe there is, though I wish I could say there wasn't or there wasn't yet, but instead I I think we would have to agree that in many ways and in a very real way, the heathen, they haven't just invaded the land, but they've even invaded the church. Um, We studied Hebrews 7 this past Sunday, and we understood Melchizedek as a type, an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. And whenever we come across, especially in the Psalms, but whenever we come across words and concepts like Jerusalem and Zion uh, or tabernacle and temple, these are Old Testament types or Old Testament pictures of the New Testament reality of the church, of God's people. For instance, where was the presence of God located in the Old Testament at this time? It was in the Holy of Holies, the most inner part of the temple, right? And, And in Jerusalem, And so, where is the presence of God located now, tonight? It's in the church, in the individual believers, and in a much stronger way when we gather together like we are right now. Verse 1 describes the invasion and the defilement of the place of God's presence, the center of worship back then. And we, regrettably, we see the same today 
in our time. There are heathen, godless concepts, philosophies, ideologies that have invaded the church of Jesus Christ. Um, the personhood of believers, that is under attack by these godless ideas. I mean, the very core of who we are. Because we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are united with Christ. Our identity is in him, and it should be in him. But biblical views of gender and the distinguishing roles that God designed, and he said it is good when he created that, that is now called into question. It's under attack by godless worldly ideas. Humanistic, godless ideas about our identity being based not just on gender, but, but wholly on our ethnicity. Uh, they've invaded the church through critical theory. And, and as a whole, we are not doing too well in evangelical Christianity and defending against these godless ideologies. Church, God's word says that our identity is based on our relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are made in his image. That's who we are. We are who he says we are, not what the ignorant and wicked philosophies of this world say we are or what we can be. And we're facing the age-old question of deception that was first posed in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, hath God said. That's what we're facing all the time, every day. That's what is streaming at us. And we better have an answer because our lives depend on it and our kids' lives depend on it. And ultimately, more importantly, the glory of God depends on it. Please remember that ideas matter. Ideas have consequences. That was true in 586 BC, and it is true this evening. A failure to know and apply biblical truth, that led to what we're going to study here, what we just read in verses 1 and 2. And if we don't learn from God's word, if we don't know it and we do not apply it to our lives, then we're inevitably going to find ourselves in the same situation. Their arena for battle is our arena for battle. And here's the result in verses 2 to 4. Would you look at the aftermath? This is the result of any apathy on our part over this invasion. Look at how God describes through Asaph the consequences of a refusal to know and apply the truth of God's word. The dead bodies of thy servants, verse 2, they have given to be meat unto the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of thy saints, unto the beasts of the earth. So literal physical death occurred, and a very grotesque scene is recorded. The invading Babylonian armies, they ruthlessly slaughtered God's people, and they didn't even have the decency to honor them with a burial. Instead, wild animals devour their corpses. In verse 3, it describes blood flowing like water in the capital city of Jerusalem the land in which God's people lived, and in the center, the center of worship at that time. And as a result, Asaph describes God's people in verse 4 as being a reproach to their neighbors. They were a source of scorn, derision, and mocking among the godless heathen peoples that surrounded them and witnessed their demise. You know, the, the physical aftermath of death is bad enough, but the mocking that the survivors had to endure, it literally added insult to injury. And the picture here is one of their faith in God's presence and power and the purpose of their faith being ridiculed and called into question. We see that today. And here a testimony before the heathen is communicated, but it's not the one that God's people wanted to deliver. And what's the cause of all this? Verses 5 through 12 gives us two causes. Verse 5 begins with a very prevalent question in lament psalms. How long, Lord? 
how long are you going to let this go on? And we're introduced to a preliminary cause of this catastrophe in the subsequent questions of verse 5. Will your anger continue forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? So a preliminary cause here is, is God's character. It's his anger and jealousy that are the first cause that's provided here for the catastrophic events of verses 1 through 4. And God's anger and jealousy, they may not be character qualities that we are all too familiar with, or we might not even be comfortable with ascribing them to God, but he is a jealous God. He is jealous for us. He is jealous for our faith. He is jealous for his glory. God proclaims in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to idols. That's honestly what God's people had done. And I, I want to go back to the historical record in God's word. If you'll turn with me back, keep your finger here, we'll be right back. But Second Chronicles 36, the last chapter in the history of Israel, right before 586 B.C., when they were invaded by the Babylonians. Let's go to Second Chronicles, and we'll look at verses 14 to 21. And as you're turning there, let me just give you kind of a preview. Verses 11 to 13, they describe the final reign of the king of Judah, King Zedekiah, before the Babylonian invasion. Verse 12 tells us that King Zedekiah, he, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet or God's message through Jeremiah to the king. And even in the midst of pending judgment from God, I mean, with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army surrounding Jerusalem, laying siege to it, the king refused to listen to Jeremiah's message from God to repent and to turn from idolatry and wicked living and turn back in faith and obedience to God's word. Let's read verses 14 to 21. It says, Moreover, all the chief of the priests, uh, people, transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words, and misused his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all of these he brought to Babylon." And they burnt the house of God, break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. And all of this to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years." And so this is the real-life fulfillment of what was prophesied would happen in Psalm 79. We better learn that when God says blank will happen unless we turn and make a correction, blank will happen. It will. Uh, back when we looked at verse 1 in Psalm 79 earlier tonight, we, we correlated the godless heathen armies breaking into the temple and defiling it with godless heathen ideologies invading the church of Jesus Christ. But in reality, the temple had already been defiled, hadn't it? Look here at verse 14 of Second Chronicles 36. What does it say? Moreover, all the chief priests 
and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. So did the Babylonian armies defile the temple when they came in and ransacked it and tore down its walls and stole all the things inside? What happened first? It says here that God's people, the chief priests, the leaders of God's people, and God's people themselves, they polluted. They defiled the temple of God. The description's clear. God's people brought sin in. And not to deal with it in confession and repentance, but to celebrate it, to worship it. Rebellious, godless, sinful, full of sin ideas, they became sinful acts. And God's own people defiled the temple of God by their embrace of these ways. What about the Christian church today? Is, is a threat from outside invaders or inside embracers of wickedness? Well, it's both. Uh, and the genuine threat to our experiencing good from God's hand and to God's glory, it has to be halted by us. <laughs> That's who has to stop it. We do. Now let's go back to Psalm 79. Continue on there. In, in verses 6 and 7, Asaph prays an imprecatory prayer, calling God's judgment down, that, that God would pour out his wrath on these heathen invaders who God used. God used them in this catastrophic judgment of his own people. And Asaph's logic is this in verses 6 and 7. God, yes, we have sinned. <laughs> and you're going to see confession and repentance of sin in verses 8 to 12. But Asaph's saying here, God, you, you are just and fair in this catastrophe that your character has caused among us. But these heathen, they, they don't even know your name. They have no regard for you. So we pray that you will deliver us as we repent and turn back to you by unleashing your judgment on them. The first cause of the catastrophe here is God's holy and jealous character. Exodus 34, 14, God says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, his name is jealous. His name. His name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Moses told God's people in Deuteronomy 4, 24, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. But there's a second cause here, and it's really the foundational or underlying cause of the catastrophe of verses 1 to 4. It's God's people's conduct. And we've already referenced it there in 2 Chronicles 36. Uh, God's anger and jealousy from his holy character, that was an initial cause, but only because it resulted from the primary cause, and that was the sin of God's people. Their wicked, rebellious refusal to turn back to him. You understand they refused his grace? A choice to embrace sin instead of him. And that's Asaph's confession and prayer for grace in, in verse 8. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities, our past sins. Let thy tender mercies speedily, King James says, prevent us. It means come and meet me. Be an obstacle for any of this happening anymore. For we are brought very low. Has God been gracious already to his people here before all this happened? That's what Second Chronicles 36, 12 to 16 described. When they began to embrace idolatry and sin, when they didn't reject godless ideologies and worldviews, God sent Jeremiah the prophet to call them back to repentance. It's pretty gracious. And verse 15 literally stated, the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers because he had compassion he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But what was their response to Jeremiah and the prophets, to the preaching? Wouldn't listen. Wouldn't listen. 
it was even more than that. They mocked, they mocked the messengers of God. They despised God's words. It said in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 36, they misused his prophets. And the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. No remedy. Till verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 79 had to be God's final message to them. A message that was loud and clear and painful that they couldn't reject. They wouldn't reject. And so in Psalm 79, in verses 8 through 12, Asaph pleads for God's mercy and grace after acknowledging the sin of God's people. In the second part of verse 8, it asks for God's mercy to come and meet them. And then at the end, it says, for we are brought very low. That's an interesting phrase, brought very low. Literally in the Hebrew, it means we are greatly thinned. Did you ever feel greatly thinned? Do you feel sometimes greatly thinned? I mean, it's Asaph. Asaph himself hadn't participated in any of this. Um, not the idolatry, not the wickedness. And he wasn't alone in his faithfulness to God. Others had remained faithful or others had turned at Jeremiah's prophetic preaching. But please notice that, that he and those like him, they still had to experience the effects of God's catastrophic judgment on his people. It was a judgment designed as a last-ditch resort by God to call his people back to faith. And so, first of all, this is a good reminder that we, none of us, we never sin in a vacuum. Um, we, when we sin, it, its effects impact other people. There are no private sins. There are no victimless sins in regard to their effects on others and on the glory of God. But secondly, this is also a good reminder that just because we feel greatly thinned, Hey, we might even be. We might be greatly thinned. Uh, we might truly be like Elijah and the 7,000 who had not bowed their knee to Baal but remained faithful to God. And we still might experience God's purposeful, purifying judgment on his people corporately, altogether. But please don't, don't let the feeling or even the reality of being greatly thinned, don't let that lead you to conclude that you are on the wrong path or you made the wrong choice or that God is not aware or that God is not there. Because it's a common sentiment. And it's not necessarily an incorrect one among believers. Feeling greatly thinned. We're greatly thinned, church. <laughs> In 2022, those who are remaining faithful to God worldwide in America, we are, we are greatly thinned. Um, I feel it myself, and I hear it from many of you from time to time. It's not a comfortable feeling that, that there's not many who believe like we do. There's not many who live like we do anymore. We're in the minority. We are. But remember that in this world, truth is usually in the minority. Things aren't like they used to be. The faithful remnant is small. Living a sold-out Christian life is a rarity these days. Stay faithful. Christian, keep, keep on. Don't despair. Praise the Lord that he has kept you <laughs> among that greatly thin remnant. And cry out to God in prayer like Asaph does here in verses 9 through 12. He says, help us, O God of our salvation, for the, for the glory of your name. Deliver us. Purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Why should the heathen say, where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants, which is shed. 
God, let the sign of the prisoner come before thee. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those that are appointed to die. Render to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach, wherewith they have reproached thee, O Lord. And so uh, in this prayer, Asaph appeals to God's character here. He's saying, do this for your glory, God, for your glory of your name. Why should heathen people arrogantly conclude and say that you don't exist or that you're powerless? Asaph's saying, God, hear our desperate cry. According to the greatness of your power, preserve us and judge those who have completely rejected you with a complete judgment, Lord. Verse 13, I'm thankful for it. There's a bright spot in this psalm. It's here in verse 13. Here's the conclusion. It talks about a reconciliation to relationship, a song here that opened up with so much pain and complete despair that God's presence and power were called into question. It ends with an affirmation here by Asaph and hopefully by us tonight that God is. He is still present among his people, the current state of the church of Jesus Christ notwithstanding. Look at what it says there in verse 13. Notice these little words. So we, thy people, we're still your people, God, and the sheep of your pasture. You're our shepherd. That hasn't changed regardless of what the church is like and our culture is like. You're still our father. You're still our shepherd. We might be a greatly thin sheep. That's not the fault of our great shepherd. Um, It's due to the wickedness of the human will. And as mentioned earlier, our, our greatly thin state is due to a failure of some in the church to take a stand and to defend against heathen, worldly, godless ideas and actions. Now I want to look at one more passage um, tonight in 2 Timothy. We went backwards. Let's go forward. 2 Timothy 3. This is Paul's last message right before um, he's beheaded as a martyr for Christ by the Roman Empire. In 2 Timothy 3, he's trying to encourage a young pastor named Timothy who's living in a world full of godless, wicked philosophies and ideologies and how to be a Christian in that time. 2 Timothy 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. They'll be unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce. They'll be despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, and from such turn away. It's so important that in order for this passage to have the power that God intends it to have, that we have to realize what is described here is not simply a characterization of the world in the last days. Remember, Paul is talking to a pastor here, and this is a letter to his church. And so in verses 1 through 5, God is having Paul describe the church in the last days. And if the church is like this, obviously the world is going to be more so on a, on a greater scale. Are these ideas that we just read here in verses 1 to 5, are these actions, are they present in the professing church of Jesus Christ today? Yeah. As painful as it is to admit, they're not just present, but they're, sometimes they're prevalent and they're becoming more so. God said that this is what it would be like. <laughs> so what are we to do? Do we just accept it and continue to do all we can to remain among the greatly thinned? 
Well, yes and no. Yes, in that God said that this would happen. So don't be freaked out that it is happening. He promised that it would happen. But no, we're not to just accept it with any kind of apathy. Instead, we need those who are, who are part of the greatly thinned. First of all, we need you to remain among the greatly thinned. And then to be. We're to be Jeremiah's. And we're to be prophets who are proclaiming God's message in, in our words and in our deeds to others saying, turn, <laughs> join us. We're to proclaim to those who are already among us, stay Stay among the greatly thinned so that they don't face the catastrophic consequences we read about in verses 1 to 4. What are we to do? We're to hold the line and obey God's command to us in Jude, verses 21, 22, and 23. He says there, keep yourselves. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be expectant of his return. And that's not it. It's not just about holding the line and playing defense and keeping yourself part of the greatly thinned. Verses 22 and 23 say, On some, have compassion, making a difference. And on others, on others, save them with fear, pulling them, pulling them out of the fire, be hating the garment that's even stained by the flesh. That's what we're to do. Back in Psalm 79, 13, we only looked at the first part of it, but the second part of that last verse, Asaph commits to praise God there. Because we're the sheep of his pasture, we're his people. We're going to give you thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. Greatly thinned or not, will God deliver his faithful? Will God deliver his church? Yeah, he's faithful. We can count on his promise. That was a promise of Jesus Christ in Matthew 16, 18. That I will build my church. That's what Jesus said. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It won't. And that's Asaph's commitment here at the end of verse 13. As hard as it may seem to believe when we get depressed, when we're feeling low, when we're feeling greatly thinned, when we look at the current state of the church and what it may continue to come to, we should say like Asaph does here in verse 13. God, you are present and you will deliver your people. And when you do, we will give you thanks forever. And we're going to praise you for all generations. Do you see that there will be a forever? There will. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, greatly thinned or not. There will be in all generations for God's people. And so that there should be a promise here on our part to give thanks and praise him now and, and then. What do you do when you feel greatly thinned? Where do you go when you are brought low? Well, we go to the promise of God's word. And we go to the faithfulness of God's character. And we leave fear and we rise to faith. I pray you come to the conclusion that Asaph did in verse 13, that God is faithful. He will deliver those who are full of faith in him. Until then, we who are among the greatly thinned, we are to hold the line against the invasion of godless ideas and the consequences that will spring from them. And until then, we proclaim the truth, the gospel truth that pulls people from the fire, that saves them through catastrophe and keeps them from causing it in the first place. As Tommy and the praise team come, let's praise him tonight. Praise him that you're among the greatly thinned. And, and let's commit to do all that we can in the loving compassion of Jesus Christ to invite others to join us and stay among us.